What a blessing to know that you're our Lord, our Savior, our God, and our King, and you're our friend as well. And you're our friend forever. You're a faithful friend. Lord, and you, you loved us so much, you'd rather die than live without us. And Lord, we long to be in your presence forevermore. Lord, I pray as we go to your word right now, may you be our teacher. Lord, soften our hearts and open our eyes to the truth you want to minister to each of us tonight. I pray once again, Lord, that you would use this marred and imperfect vessel that you might be glorified. None of man and all of you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. Great to have you here. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one. I know he passed them out earlier, and if you don't have one, raise your hand. You're going to need a Bible. Okay. Turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 6, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. All right. Judges, as we know, this is the point where Joshua has gone to be with the Lord, and now the people, sadly... As soon as Joshua, their deliverer, the one that God had brought, his name is Yahshua, like Jesus. Moses couldn't bring them in the land of promise. Moses, the type of the law. So Joshua, again, his name is Yahshua, brought them in, just like the law cannot deliver us from sin, only Jesus can. And so they were brought into the land of promise, but then Joshua died, and almost immediately they went back to their old ways. And we've talked about this in Judges. We see these cycles of sin in Judges seven different times where they're walking with the Lord, they have a relationship with God, they're resting in Him, and then as soon as their judge or their deliverer dies, they would rebel against God, and then God's divine judgment would come against them, usually using a, another nation to bring judgment. And then after years of dealing with the consequences of the rebellion, they would eventually cry out to God, He would restore them, bring rest, and they would start all over again. And sadly, we see this and you think, man, this is really repetitive. But you know what? It's such a picture of our lives, isn't it? If we're being honest, it's a picture of our lives. We go through times of on fire for God, sold out for Him. And then we go through times where we get dry and we're not walking with the Lord the way we used to be. We're not as on fire as we used to be. We're not as sold out as we used to be. And as I used to say when I was a youth pastor, if you're not as close to God as you used to be, who moved? Because God didn't move, you did. And we'll see a little bit of that tonight in the text. So tonight we're going to see another one of those cycles beginning. But we're also going to be introduced to a, a, the judge that's spoken more of in this book than any of the others. A man who's listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But he's also a man who had personal struggles with his own faith. And they're going to be laid open and bare before us. So we're going to see exactly who this guy was that we can learn from it. I don't know about you guys. I'm really glad that all the people in the Bible aren't perfect. Amen? Amen? Can you imagine if everybody was Daniel? You know, it would be rough. You know, it's not, we know Daniel was a sinner because all men are, but can you, there's not one recorded sin for Daniel. That guy always seemed to make the right choice. Now, we know he's a sinner saved by grace because we all are. But the point is, I'm glad we're going to see guys like we're going to see in the text tonight. Because we're going to find out that God can use anybody, even you. Amen? Even me. And we're going to learn that example by looking at this man whose name is in the Hall of Faith. And maybe some of you have heard about him. You've always thought, man, this guy must be awesome because I hear about him all the time. But we're going to get a little insight to this man and find out that he struggled big time. This most unlikely deliverer who starts out, he's going to start out hiding, faithless, coward. He's then going to become a conqueror, but he's going to end up being a compromiser. We're going to see that in the next three weeks. Coward to conqueror to compromiser. We're going to also see that this guy begins as a reluctant farmer who becomes a judge and should again be a great encouragement to us because this guy, we'll see, has a lot of frailties. This reluctant and weak faith farmer who would become a judge and deliverer of Israel's name was Gideon. So this man Gideon, again, often we think of Gideon's mighty men, right? And we'll see that next week in chapter 7. And Gideon had some mighty men. But before Gideon had some mighty men, he had some weak faith. And we're going to see it tonight, and it should again. My prayer is that we would be encouraged. Before the Lord could use Gideon in his service, he had to deal with four doubts that plagued Gideon. And maybe some of these are doubts and obstacles to your own faith here tonight. And I wrote down four questions that seemingly Gideon had that are then answered in the text. 
We're going to see by his actions that these are questions that are at least on his heart because of the way he responds to God's commandment. These doubts and obstacles that some of us no doubt have. They can be expressed in these four questions. If you're taking notes tonight, the title of the message is Doubter to Deliverer. From Doubter to Deliverer. I almost, I almost titled the message, God can use you too, or something like that. Because it should be, again, that encouragement. Here's the four questions we're going to see answered in the text. And these seem to be questions that Gideon has, that God needs to resolve before he can be used by the Lord. Number one, does God really care about us? Does God really care about us? Sometimes you might ask that question, you're going through a really tough time and you think God is just not paying attention. God doesn't care about you right now. God just seemingly isn't tracking with me. His eyes aren't on me at the very, this very moment. Does God really care about us? Number two, does God really know what he's doing? <laughs> now, I know that you and I, we laugh, but you're going to see that that seems to be the question Gideon asks. Does, that God, do you have a clue what you're doing here? He's going to ask that question. Thirdly, will God really take care of me or protect me? Will God really take care of me or protect me? And fourthly, does God keep His promises? Now again, you may not have those questions in your mind, but you know what? There may be some of those things, maybe to, a very, to, to different degrees, that you struggle with yourself. Questions that reveal a, a heart of fear and doubt coming from a man written about. Remember, he's in God's hall of faith, this guy. That encourages me. He's one of the people listed and God, God says, these are faithful people. And he names some people and there's not very many of them. And this guy's one of them. And I like that. Because it's an encouragement to me that though I may blow it and though I may fall short, that God can still use me and I can literally be a man or, or a woman in your case maybe, that God would say belongs in my hall of faith. Not because we're perfect but because He is. So from doubter to deliverer, may we be encouraged as we witness the grace and mercy and certainly the patience of God as He turns this faithless, doubting farmer into a mighty man of valor. And I like that. A a faithless, doubting farmer. And these four questions are going to express the doubts that plague Gideon and maybe questions for for some of us tonight. Again, answered for him some 3,000 years ago, applicable to us tonight. So the first one is, does God really care about us? We're gonna, that's verse 1 through 13, that's point 1. Now listen, when we get to the end of verse 13, Gideon's going to say, the Lord has forsaken us. The Lord has forsaken us. And the interesting part about that is, that Gideon's response, this is at the end of his message. He listens to what God says, and then he says, the Lord has forsaken us. Now, sometimes we can be that way too. The truth is that throughout the, the entire time, the Lord had been given proof of his love and his, his patience and his desire to see Israel ministered to, and yet we still see Gideon, this mighty man, the next deliverer of Israel, out of all the people to choose from, this is the guy, and he's saying the Lord has forsaken us. But as we're going to see from the text... It wasn't the Lord that forsook Israel. It was Israel that forsook the Lord. Let's begin in verse 1. Does God really care about us? Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Here we go again. This is always a trigger to another cycle. Now the last chapter ended, remember? Deborah's song. Jael putting the tent peg through Sisera's head. Remember that story from last time? And remember that God had brought victory over Jabin the king of Canaan. And over Sisera and the army, and, he, and they brought rain down, the chariots were stuck in the mud, and God brought this great victory, and they had 40 years of peace. God dwelling with them, and things are wonderful. But you know what can happen? When things are good, we can grow spiritually complacent. Israel was no longer desperate. They no longer had a, a need in their mind for a deliverer. The deliverer was gone, and now they said, well, I'm just going to do my own thing now. I don't need to keep my eyes on anybody but me. It's all about me. And you know what? We've all got the me, my, and I disease, right? It's all about me way too much. And so what happens here is that as soon as the leader's gone, as soon as the deliverer's gone, as soon as that coal is taken away, right, and set on its own, in their prosperity and complacency, they went the way of the previous generations and they returned to their flesh-driven idolatry. So they turned away from God. Notice this first. Then... 
Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. That came first. And then God's response. Look at the rest of the verse. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Here's the truth. Write this down if you're taking notes. God will not allow you and I to sin successfully. He won't let you. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but if you're his child, he loves you enough that he will discipline you. He will bring consequences into your life, whatever it takes to get you back home. Whatever I have to do because I love you. You know, that's how we feel as parents about our children. I've, told, I've given my, all my kids this speech. Usually on the first day of high school, I reiterate it. We're driving on the way to school and I say, look, I love you enough to have you be mad at me for the next four years if that's what it takes. Because it's all about building a young woman or a young man of character, not being popular with my kids right now. And God's heart is the same. God's not worried about being popular with us. He's about us being young men and women who, are, who have godly character and walk with Him. It's pleasurable for a season, but before long, the discipline or the consequences for sin are going to come. Bible says those who the Lord loves, He disciplines. How do we know that God cares for us? That's the first question, right? Does God really care? Yes, He does. How do we know? He disciplines us. It says in Proverbs, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Proof number one, that he loved Israel, he chastened them. God is not a permissive parent. He will allow us to, have, to walk outside of his will. But he's not the kind of parent who's going to ki- give his kids whatever they want so they'll love him. By the way, if you're doing that, stop it. Amen? You're not loving your kids by letting them have whatever they want. You're raising a spoiled brat. Is that true or not? The truth is that what we need to do is certainly love them and minister to them and lay down our lives for them, but we need to love them enough to teach them right and wrong, to teach them the truth about who God is, to teach them first also about His grace, but also about the consequences for sin. His ultimate purpose is that they might be conformed to the image of His Son. Chastening is evidence of God's love for His people and His hatred for sin. Guys, we, I think we've missed it. We're starting to think that sin's not a big deal in this country. And in the church today, well, it's not that big a deal. It's paid for, right? So who really cares? Yeah, I'm entertained by that, and I know it's sinful and wicked, but, you know, it's just a little bit of sin in there. It's not that bad. It's like, I love Corson shared this at the pastor's retreat 15 years ago, and I still remember it. He said, can you imagine they brought out a beautiful Thanksgiving dinner prepared by the greatest chef that ever lived, and set it out before you and said, oh, by the way, one thing I need to mention, we did spill a little bit of arsenic in some of the food somewhere, we're not sure where it is. How much of that would you be eating? None of it. And a little bit of arsenic in our entertainment is not okay. A little bit of sinful behavior is not okay. And we need to be driven to holiness before Almighty God. Perfect holy God wants what's best for us, that we might walk in holy character in the image of His Son. Our example is Jesus Christ and not the world. Our example is Him and Him alone. We follow His pattern. We are Christians, not worldlings. Amen? We don't follow the world, we follow Christ. And, and so we see here his proof for his love is he delivered them into bondage. Now, they might have thought that was proof he didn't love them. And that's kind of how your kids feel sometimes when you spank them. You don't love me. No, yes, I do. And that's why I'm going to spank you again, right? The point is that we do it because the Bible tells us it drives disobedience far from them. They need to learn that there is an authority, that there is a right, that there is a wrong to draw them back. Guys, we don't want our kids juggling knives or playing on the freeway because we love them and we know it will bring them harm. And God loves us and He knows what will bring us harm and He loves us enough to drag us back toward Him. To say, I love you, I'm not going to let you stay there. I'm going to bring the consequences that if you won't come freely, that those things will drive you back where you need to be. Obedience to the Lord builds character, but sin destroys it. And God cannot sit idly by and watch His children destroy themselves. Parents, we, I'm not going to do it. I've told my kids before when they're just acting up. Look, I'm bigger than you and I'll do what I have to do. Do you understand what I'm telling you? 
The point is that I love them enough that I will do whatever it takes as a father for my children. And I'm an imperfect dad. How much more does our Heavenly Father love us? How much more perfect is He? And so because He loves them, He disciplines them. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord said, okay, Midianites, come on down. Now the Midianites, as we know, were not godly people. And I, could, I can think of few things worse than having to be disciplined by the world when I've disobeyed God. Amen? Can there be anything worse than having an unbeliever in your office say, Oh, I thought you were a Christian. Oh, does that hurt or what? That's as bad as it gets. When the world starts pointing out your sin, that's not good. And Midian, the Midianites, we know they're descendants of Abraham, so they're related to Israel, through, through Keturah, his wife, after Sarah had died. He had six more sons. He sent them out to the east because he didn't want them hassling Isaac and his descendants. But guess what? They became huge enemies. The Midianites. They were idol worshipers. Remember when they went to the land of promise, the Lord said, wipe them all out. Why? Because if you leave them, you're going to start worshiping their idols. You start hanging out with the world, you're going to become like the world every single time. And no, you're not the exception. We always think that. Well, that's other people. I'm pretty strong in my faith, and I think I can handle it now. No, you can't. The Bible tells us to flee youthful lust. We're not to see how much fire we can hold to ourselves and see how long it takes to get burned. So the truth is that these sons and this division had come, and now the Midianites were these idolatrous people, and God was going to use them to bring about discipline upon his own Children. Just as a side note, it's interesting. Abraham's descendants were fighting with each other. Is that still happening today or what? Isaac and Ishmael, the Jews and the Arabs, still fighting today. And all of that came because, what were you thinking, Abraham sleeping with the maidservant? What were you thinking? You know, we go, to, we go to Israel and they have this guy pretending to be Abraham one night. You get on camels and you ride out to this place where Abraham would have lived. And you, it's in a tent like Abraham would have had. And they feed you dinner. And the guy pretends to be Abraham the whole time. And he's talking about, and he talks in this Jewish voice. And I just, and I, at both times, I raised, all three times, I raised my hand. Abraham, I got a question. Oh, yeah, what is it? I said, so, Hagar, what were you thinking? Just, just got a question for you. And he goes, oy vey, not very, you know what I mean? Not a good move. Adultery, not a good thing. So God used the Midianites to humble them and turn them back to God. Look at verse 2. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Now why is that? Because God let it happen. Nobody can touch Israel unless God says so. Nobody can touch you or me unless God says so. And so God allowed it to happen. Why? Because they had turned away from God. He wanted to discipline them and bring them back into right fellowship. This is proof not that God doesn't love them, but that He indeed does. Then it says there, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. These guys are living in caves. You know what? They were living in the land flowing with milk and honey. They had all of it to themselves. God said, it's yours. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to be with you. And now they sin and are living in caves. Can we see that what sin does to us? You know, I'll never forget... A guy that I knew that fell into adultery, he didn't fall, he jumped into adultery. Nobody falls, that's a cop-out. He jumped into adultery, and I remember he had this beautiful family, this beautiful home, and everything was just wonderful. And then I, you know, I, go to, I went to minister to the guy, and he was living in this really seedy part of town. It was just brutal, and I was like, dude, what were you thinking? And you know, sin has such heavy-duty consequences. Guys, what God has for us is always so much better than what the world has for us. And so we see what happens here is they sin, now they're living in caves. How's that working out for you guys? You were in the land flowing of milk and honey, you had everything to yourselves, God was blessing you, you'd wiped out the giants, God was going before you, you sin, you're living in caves. This is what happens to all of us. You know, it's interesting, they're hiding. What did Adam and Eve do as soon as they sinned? They hid from God. They hid from God. Guys, we should not hide from God when we've blown it become humbly and broken before Him because His arms are open wide. Amen? He wants you to come. He wants you to come unto Him. Verse 3 through 5. So it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also the Amalekites, they should have been dead already, 
the Amalekites and the people of the east, they should have been dead, would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. Imagine growing a beautiful, beautiful garden, and it was going to be all the food for your family for the entire year. You had a plot of land, I don't know, 25 acres maybe, I don't know, and you filled it full of food because it's got to feed your entire extended family for the next year. And you grow it all. You work all summer and all spring. And now it's time for a harvest. And, and when harvest day comes, in come this huge army and they just take all of your food. If you can relate to that, that's what the children of Israel were dealing with. Imagine if you worked your job, whatever you do for a living, construction or a school teacher or secretary. And can you imagine if every two weeks on payday, when your boss went to hand you your check, some guy just ran by and snacked it out of your hands and kept running. This is what's happening to Israel. They're toiling and they're working and they're striving and they're struggling and it's fruitless. You know what this is a picture of? When we walk outside of God's will, our lives are going to be fruitless. When we're living in rebellion, our lives are not going to produce any fruit. You know what, guys? If you're, if you're, well, I haven't really never led anybody to the Lord. I've never really shared my faith. There's not a lot going on in my life. I'm, guess what? Maybe you're in rebellion. Because if you're walking with God, your life will be fruitful. The Bible says that they produce fruit some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. So it doesn't say some produce no fruit. If they're walking with the Lord, their lives will be fruitful. But sadly, because of their disobedience, their lives were fruitless. They took it away from them by force. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau, twin brothers, right? Jacob's name was changed to... Israel, so the descendants of Israel are descendants of Jacob, and Esau was the son of the flesh. Jacob, a picture of the spirit, Esau the flesh. And if you remember, Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. You want to talk about the flesh. Selling your birthright for a bowl of soup. Well, that's what he did. Well, guess what? They were battling with each other, and the Amalekites were descendants of Esau. And many people believe the Bedouin people that live in Israel today are descendants of these same Amalekites. So it's interesting that these Amalekites that should have been done away with already are now coming back again to haunt them, to take their crops, to take their paycheck, this overwhelming foe. We're going to find out that there's 135,000 Midianites plus Amalekites plus the people from the east. I don't know how many that is. And this is the first time in the Bible we see camels being used in warfare. I don't know if you've been around a camel. They're big. Camels are big. And they're smelly too, by the way. They're just big, smelly animals. But one thing about them, they're fast. And guess what? If you don't have camels, the other people do, they're going to outrun you. So 135,000 plus all the other tribes of people coming on camels. You're in trouble. And so here they are, they're defenseless. Why? Because they're doing it on their own. This overwhelming foe was going to wipe them out, was going to take away. Now, how many years would you keep planting food? We know what happened for seven years. There's nothing they can do about it. They can't stop it. Israel's sin and rebellion promised pleasure, and the result was instead fruitless lives and unsatisfied hunger. Let me say that again. Sin promises pleasure, and it is for a season, but in the end, it produces a fruitless life and unsatisfied hunger. Have you ever noticed that when you sin, you've got to sin a little more the next time, or it doesn't really quite work as well you know you used to get a buzz off a sip of beer now you got to drink a 12 pack right isn't that true i hope not for any of you guys but the point is that we get desensitized to it and we have to have more and our flesh needs more to be satisfied and we're more hungry you know i i I worked on with some guys on death row when i did prison ministry for four and a half years and every guy that was on death row for murder told me every single one of them All of them, in this case, had either murdered children or women. All of them. And every one of them said that it started with pornography. Because it began to desensitize women and desensitize children. 
and then made them less and less of what they were and just a, a source of pleasure for me, in, you know, my person, me personally. And what happened was before long, they became nothing of value and it had to get worse and worse and worse before they finally started living it out. And you know what, guys? We cannot sin a little bit and have it be okay. Because it's going to keep getting worse and bigger. And, and you might say, well, Pastor Dave, we all sin. Yes, we do. But we ought to be convicted every single time. Convicted and driven to our knees in repentance. Here they are sitting in rebellion, saying if, if God really cared, He'd fix this. If God loved us, He wouldn't let them take our crops. Where's God now? And that's kind of going to be Gideon's heart here in a moment, as we'll see. But guess what? There needs to be repentance. The consequences and the correction must come so that in the end, repentance will be the result. There can be no conversion without conviction. And there can be no repentance until there's been some consequences for our actions that drive us back to the Lord. So look at verse 6. So Israel was greatly impoverished. I guess so. And you might think, well, man, where's God? God's right where He's supposed to be. Loving them enough to let them be impoverished so that they will come to the end of themselves and turn back to Him. You know, sometimes we think we're helping people and all we're doing is harming them more. Can I tell you the hardest thing as a pastor? I'll just be real transparent with you. One of the hardest things as a pastor is knowing who we're supposed to help and who we're not supposed to. We get 10 calls a day sometimes needing help. We could help them all. We wouldn't... I mean, we'd all have to go back to work and I don't know where we'd meet or anything else. But the point is that there are times when we're being disobedient by continuing to help somebody because maybe their behavior is sinful. And we're propping up the wrong behavior. And it's not about the money. It's, Lord, what is your heart for us? What are we supposed to do here? What is your will? The same is happening here. They're saying, oh, God's just letting us die here. No, you guys are in rebellion and you need to get right with the Lord. And, there, and, and I have to pray, pray for me. Wisdom. Because, Lord, we want to be obedient. We don't want to mistreat any... We want, you know, we want to love everybody and love them enough that if God tells us not to, to say, not this time, we can't help you. Because we think it's better for you this time to trust the Lord. And maybe God wants to do something in your heart. God's divinely ordained judgment upon Israel's rebellion from turning to idolatry is the reason there was no fruit, not because God didn't care. Do we see the difference here? It's very important. They did evil, then the consequences. Too often we think, oh, there's consequences, God doesn't care. No, there's consequences because God does care. And it's important that we see that tonight. And it says there, they were impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel, what? What did they do? They cried out to the Lord. Praise God. They were finally brought to the end of themselves, because of God's divine discipline and the consequences of sin, because of their poverty and their bondage, they finally put their eyes back on God. You know what, guys? If they had been living in idolatry and nothing had ever changed, they would have kept living in it. But God loved them enough to say, okay, you live in that, here's the consequences. All right, you have an adulterous relationship, at some point, somebody's going to get pregnant. At some point, you're going to come down with a sexually transmitted disease. At some point, her husband's going to find out, or your wife, somebody's going to find out. Your sin's going to come to light. Why? Because God loves you. I know we don't look at things that way often. We want to go sin and then tell God to cover it up for us. He's never going to do that, by the way. By the way, I heard it, and I hate to mention it because I don't want anybody to use it. But there's a, there's a new thing on the internet and I'm not even going to tell the name of it because you might call them. I don't want you to do that. But there's a new thing on the internet that actually gives you alibis. So you can call them and tell them, and then you're, you tell them, oh, I told my wife going to be the Boston Hilton, and then you give her this 800 number. When she calls, they go, Boston Hilton. And they cover up so you can have an affair. What kind of world are we living in? You know what? Their sin's still going to find them out. It always does, Amen. Always does. I saw this on TV. I'm thinking, man, I bet there's some people calling, find out the real number of the Boston Hilton after seeing this on TV. I hope so. I hope people got burned by that. They need to. So here's the point. Israel cries out to the Lord. But guess what? Unless our suffering leads to repentance, it accomplishes nothing good. We need to get to the point where that 
difficulty of life brings us to a place of brokenness before God. Unless our repentance is evidence of a holy desire to turn from sin and not just to escape from pain, it's not repentance, it's just remorse. Guys, saying I'm sorry is not repentance. If I, if I go up here and hit Stoney in the chops, he'd probably hurt me, but if I hit him, and then I said I'm sorry, and I hit him again, and I said I'm sorry, and I hit him again, that's not repentance. And the point is that we do that with God. We think, well, I pray. Well, God knows if we're repentant or if we're just trying to get out of the consequences. And Israel is crying out to the Lord here and God again. Here's an opportunity to draw them back unto Him. Verse 7. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them from before you, and gave you their land. You know one of the things that God loves to do when we're in times of difficulty, is remind us of everything He's done for us. Guys, how do you know that God loves you? One, He loves you enough to discipline you. And two, He loved you enough to give you His Word as a constant reminder of all the great and awesome things He's done for you in the past. How do you know God loves you? Read the book. Amen? Read God's Word. It is the greatest love letter ever written. He would remind them of the wonderful way He delivered them out of bondage. He'd given them the land of promise. He overcame the giants in the land. But look what He says in verse 10. I, also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. God loves us enough to rebuke us if necessary. And aren't you glad? Now again, this is Him giving the Word to them. They didn't have the Word in the way we have. They had the first five books at this point. But they didn't have the whole counsel of God the way we do. And in this case, the prophet shows up to give them the word. And in this case, the word reminds them of what God has done for them, but also rebukes them for being disobedient in spite of all that God has done for them. If the Jews were suffering from Gentile bondage, it wasn't God's fault. That's what he's saying. He's saying, but you did not obey my voice. Why are you in the mess you're in? You disobeyed. Why is everything falling down around you? You disobeyed. It was their rebellion and disobedience that brought about the bondage and consequences. They had disobeyed God's clear command. We shouldn't be shocked when we do. The consequences come. The purpose of chastening is to make God's children willing to listen to God's word. You know one of the times that my kids are most attentive, because they have to be, is right about the time they're going to get a swat. When my kids were little, we had the wooden spoon. Later it became the board of education as they got bigger. Wooden spoon, they're like, yeah, right, that doesn't hurt anymore. Okay, well, we can find something bigger. Now, but I would have them get the wooden spoon and walk to the laundry room. And when you're three, that's like the longest walk ever. So they would take the spoon, right, they're already crying. And they walk to the laundry room, and I would go in there. I'd usually make them wait a minute or two. I know, I'm mean dad. But I would make them wait, and then I would go in and ask them why they're being punished. And then I would spank them, and then we would pray and ask God to forgive them. And then if it was to their brother or sister, they'd have to go and ask forgiveness from the person that they had made, you know, done this against. And all of this, you know, this was a time where my kids' ears were wide open because they knew they were in trouble. And the same is true here, that God will bring consequences upon disobedience and chastening that we might listen to the Word of God. You know, people that don't listen when they've lost everything, start listening. People that don't listen sitting in a jail cell, start listening. People don't listen, lost their job, lost everything, everything's a mess because of their disobedience to God. Real, here's wide open all of a sudden. It's amazing how that works. Guys were real attentive when I did the prison ministry, I'm telling you. Where are you going? I mean, you know, you think I tell you that on Sunday, I tell them that every week. You know, where are you going? I've got nowhere to go. So guys, we spank our kids, we admonish them to heed the word of God. Next time you start to question if God really cares about you, remember all he's done for you. Does God, God really care about you? He cares about you enough that he loves you enough to chasten you. God cares about you enough, 
He sent His Word to remind us of all that He's done. And as you and I know, He cared about us enough that He'd rather die than live without us. Amen? He cares about you. He loves you. Enough even to come to us personally. Look at verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the Abazrite, while his son Gideon threshed the wheat and the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord, when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, who is that? That's Jesus Christ. There's a pre-incarnate Christophany or Theophany, Christ coming in Old Testament times. He's coming to the people, and I love this, because he's showing up, and what's going on? They're starving, they're hiding, and they're in bondage. Right? And Jesus shows up. How are every one of us, spiritually? We were starving, we were hiding, and we were in bondage. And Jesus showed up. Amen? And He delivered us out of bondage. Ophrah means dust. I like that. And Joash means one who despairs or burns. And Abazrite means father of help. Dust burns father of help. We were made out of what? Dust of the earth. What do we deserve? Hellfire. Praise God, He sent us some help. Amen? Praise God, He sent one to deliver us. Because we were born sinful and wicked. God is a great and an awesome God. Gideon's name means warrior. He's not going to start out that way. His name means warrior. That's a good name. I like that. And that's a good way. You know, you know some of these names in the Bible, you read them and you think, how in the world, that poor kid. But in this case, Gideon, that's a good name. So Gideon probably had a godly father, which we're going to see in a moment. But he's not living up to his name. But notice what he's doing. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, you may not understand that, but one of the things they have in, in Israel is a thing called the biblical gardens. It's actually pretty cool. And in the biblical gardens, they have things like a threshing floor and a wine press and a yoke of oxen and, you know, a cubit and all this stuff. It's kind of neat. It ephah and all. And what it's neat is you go through and they got all these little things that are from the Bible and you go, oh, I, okay, I get it now. Well, a threshing floor was always up high and a place where the wind could come through because they would take and throw the stuff in the air and it would separate the wheat from the chaff. Well, a wine press was always down and it was always something where there was not a lot of wind so this he's doing this because he's hiding he's in the hiding trying to get some food for his family because he knows who's going to show up at harvest time midianites and they're going to take all our food so we can't be up high where they can see us we got to hide out isn't it amazing when we're in rebellion how often we find ourselves hiding out isn't it amazing how we try to cover it up we don't want it in the light where everybody can see it we got to hide it out we got to cover it up so Gideon, this warrior, is fearful and hiding. That's not what warriors do. But that's how he starts. Verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now I love this. He's hiding. And what does the Lord call him? Mighty man of valor. Why? Because of all the things he's done? He's hiding. He's afraid. And God calls him a mighty man of valor. You know why? Because God doesn't see who we are, but who we're going to be. And that should be an encouragement to every single one of us. He says, you're a mighty man of valor, and you're going to be in my hall of faith one day. You don't even know it. And right now, you're hiding, and you're wimping out, and you're going to be questioning God the rest of this chapter, and you're going to go sideways and be wimpy. But you know what? You're a mighty man of valor, because I know who you're going to be when I'm done. He who has begun a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And I'm so glad that God sees me finished. And I'm praying that when I'm done, I'm a mighty man of valor. Amen? God knows already. Didn't seem like the Lord was with him. Didn't seem like he was a mighty man of valor. But Gideon might have turned around. I I can imagine. Can you imagine he shows up, mighty man of valor? I almost imagine him going, who else is in here? Couldn't be talking to me. I'll never forget when I met my wife, she said something to me that was pretty flat, and I literally thought she must have been talking to somebody else. I turned around, because I know you're not talking to me. You know why? Because it didn't describe me in my mind at all. And here, he says to a mighty man of valor, and I can almost imagine he turned around and was looking for somebody else. But the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you. That's why he's going to be a mighty man of valor. 
The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you is the key to being a man or woman of, value, of, of great valor. Then it says in verse 13, Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened? And where are the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. He definitely does not sound like a man of valor. Does he? The Lord left us out here to die. We're done. God's no fair. Look what's happening. If God is with us, why are we getting wiped out? He's challenging God. He's saying, you forsook us. Uh, No, 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 no. You forsook God. You know, that's not a real popular thing to tell people in counseling. But a lot of times they'll say, well, God's forsaking me. Uh, I know that's not true. Because God never does that. Amen? And too often we want to blame God. No, no, it's not God's fault. It's your fault. God didn't do it. You did it. We want to blame God for our marriage. You're part of it. You're half. Don't blame God. It's you. And I found this to be true. It's always both people's fault, at least a little bit. Amen? So the problem was, in their mind, with God. God did it. But it wasn't. In truth, it was Israel forsook God And God didn't forsake Israel. Again, God, I love how God responds though. He says, you forsook us. Okay, God, where's the miracles? How come there's no miracles then? How come, you know, brought us out of Egypt. How come you're not bringing us from the Midianites? They're smaller than the Egyptian army. Why don't you wipe them out? Oh, God's forsaken us. And I love that God doesn't say, well, no, let me me explain it to you. Let me answer your wheres and whys. No, you know what he does? He tells them what? And I like that. Okay, here's what you need to do. He doesn't explain away and answer his problems and his questions. So does God really care about us? You bet. Enough to discipline us, to bring us back into fellowship. Enough to send us his word, to remind us all he's done for us. And enough to come down to us personally, as he does here, to Gideon. Does God know what he's doing? We better know the answer to that question. Of course he does, but take a look. Verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go, now he doesn't say, now let me explain to you what really is happening here. Instead, he tells him to go. Go do something. He says, go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Don't you love how God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? Who's he picking? A guy who's hiding. A hiding guy who's questioning God and saying, you've forsaken us. And God says, okay, you're my man. Now go. Go. And go attack the Midianites. He was saying the Midianites are overrunning us. Well, that's because you're supposed to go take care of them. Now go get them. And Gideon's not not so much. He questions God's concern for his people. And now he's going to question God's wisdom in choosing him. Look at verse 15. So he said to him, oh my Lord. Oh my Lord. How can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least of my father's house. Lord, I'm the weakest, wimpiest, smallest, worst, least. You can't use me. Sometimes we feel that way, don't we? We look around and we think, oh, God couldn't use me. I'm not, I'm not eloquent enough. I'm not educated enough. I'm not, I'm not smart enough. I'm not studied enough. I mean, I'm no Billy Graham. God doesn't want you to be Billy Graham. He wants you to be you. And He wants you to be faithful to use the gifts you've been given. Billy Graham doesn't have your gifts. That's why you need to use them. Amen? Amen. And so here this challenge comes and his response is, no way. Reminds me of Moses, right? Moses, you're delivered. I'm stutterer. I can't go. Forget it. No way. You know what? In our weakness, he is made strong. Look what he says here. Verse 16. And the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you. There's the answer. The key to being used by God is not who you are, how educated, how eloquent, not your pedigree, but who He is. Not who you are, but who He is. Is He greater than any problem? You better believe it. Can He use us to do mighty and awesome things? Absolutely. He's just looking for willing vessels. Again, It's not who we are, but who He is. And God is faithful. And the key there is, I will be with you, 
and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. You plus God is the majority. God could take a hiding, fearful, frail Gideon by himself with God and wipe out 135,000 Midianites, no problem. Why? Because God's greater than everything. And the point is that we need to, instead of trying to get God on our program, is get in line with His. Lord, you're with me. Let me follow you. God's assurance of Gideon was not to build up his self-esteem, by the way. Do you notice that? Too often we think, why? I need more self-esteem. I need more self-confidence. No, you don't. You need more God-confidence. You need to have more confidence in God. Amen? You need to trust that God is greater than you think. He is greater than we think. It is important to know that God has sent us to do even greater things with us if we will simply let Him. By the way, if God calls you to do something, He'll enable you or equip you to do it. God doesn't call the equipped, He equips the called. And if you're called, you step out and watch what God does. I look far more for calling than I do equipping. We ought to be equipped. We ought to study to show ourselves approved. You guys know we have classes you can take on, how to, on sermon, all those kinds of things. But more important than that is a calling from God. That He's got a, a, grabbing a hold of your life. God would say to each one of us, if you feel frail and weak, step out, I'm with you. You're not alone. Verse 17. Then he said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that, is, that it is you who talk to me. Now, he's asking for a sign, and in this case, I actually think it's okay. Because he's not fully understanding who the angel of the Lord even is yet. He tells him, I want you to go, and he says, okay, well, how do I know for sure this is you? Give me a sign. Well, for you and I, the greatest sign we can have is we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us and we have this in our hand. And we can say, okay, Lord, you know, maybe before you sell your house and move halfway across the country on a lark because you're driving home from work and thought, I think that'd be a good idea and just move. Might be a good idea to seek the Lord first. Amen. And I believe in this case, he's being obedient in seeking the Lord. Verse 18, do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. Who said that to him? The Lord did. You know, the Lord waits for us. The Lord said, I'll wait till you come back. I'm right here. And I believe that's a a word for a lot of us, right? The Lord's right where we left him. Amen? I'm just going to wait right here. And when you come back, I'm waiting for you. We run off and, you know, come back. Come back to where you were with the Lord. It was not wrong for Gideon to ask for this confirmation, to get clear direction from the Lord. By the way, we don't need confirmation for things that are already written in in God's Word to tell us we're not to do it. Amen? But I'm praying about whether or not I should be with this unbeliever. You don't have to pray. God said no. Amen? I'm praying about whether or not I should leave my wife. Uh, You don't have to pray. God said no. We only pray about things that are not clearly defined in the Word of God. You're praying about moving or whatever. You know what? Seek the Word. Seek the Lord. Pray. Seek His face. But we don't have to pray about things that God's already told us no. You don't have to, by the way, you don't have to pray about whether or not you should be in fellowship either. I know you're the Wednesday night crowd. You're here. But He told you to be in fellowship. Amen? Well, I'm praying about whether or not I should go to church. Uh, you don't have to pray about that. God told you to do that. Well, I'm praying about whether or not I should use my gifts. You don't have to pray about that. God told you to do that. Amen? Just be obedient and God will use you. I'll wait until you come back. Verse 19. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. Now, first of all, you need to understand that he took an ephah of flour that's enough to feed his family for many days. What are they going through? A famine. This is a faithful act, isn't it? He also took a young goat. Goats produce milk, goats, you, know, you can have meat from a goat, and he took that too. And this is him giving something that cost him something to the Lord. It's never truly an offering if it costs me nothing. Amen? And so he brings it out to the Lord. And verse 20, And the angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord, this is Jesus, put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire arose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Do you think we might know who he's talking to now? 
Confirm to me, O Lord, that this is really from God. Okay. Now, I love that this is unleavened bread. Do you find that interesting? Meat, unleavened bread, something being poured out on the rock. Who are we talking about here? Man, this is Jesus all over the place, isn't it? Who's the rock? Jesus. Who's the unleavened bread pointing to? Jesus. Whose flesh was, again, scorched for us, scourged for us. And I love that it says the angel goes away, but it doesn't go away until the fire came. And remember when Jesus departed, the Holy Spirit came as tongues of what? Fire. Just pastor's opinion, okay? And the Bible rocks, okay? Jesus is all over it. It will just pay attention. I want you to notice he didn't smote the rock either. Right? Isn't that what kept Moses out? He didn't do that. He just touched it with his staff and the fire ignited it. The fire out of the rock and Jesus departs. Gideon finds confirmation where? A place I believe a lot of us can. The Lord's table in a sense, right? Got all the elements there and that's where he comes. Do you know that for me personally, the, what, the time that I knew for sure that I was called to be a pastor was at communion at Calvary Chapel AV on a Sunday night. I went forward to communion. I was kneeling at the altar and just praying and seeking the Lord. And the Lord spoke to my heart, you're supposed to be a pastor. I've got a calling on your life, Dave. Get ready. Because when we're at communion, what are we doing? We're looking back to the cross. We're looking in within our own hearts. And we're looking forward to heaven when we will take this, this Lord's Supper with Him. Gives us an eternal perspective. It helps change everything, doesn't it? And it's at that place that God confirmed His heart to Gideon. And I believe He can do the same. He can do it any time. But there's something about coming to the Lord's table that brings us back to what God has done for us and makes our eyes need, where they need to be looking ahead. Now Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, I guess so. Fire, <laughs> and he departs. Oh, oh, that was God. Very good, Gideon. You're paying attention. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Gideon thought he was going to die. He perceived he was an angel of the Lord and said, Oh, I've seen God. I've seen the face of the Lord. I'm going to die. Can you imagine God showing up to give you instruction and then killing you? God's not going to do that. But this just shows the heart of man sometimes. Instead of saying, okay, Lord, the Lord showed up. He's got something great for me. Instead, he was worried that he was going to be struck down dead. Verse 24. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abazrites. Now listen. He asked for a sign. God gives him one. And what does he do? He builds an altar unto the Lord. You know what? I believe the guys that build altered are altered guys. Amen? He'd been altered by the Lord. The Lord had touched his heart. And he said, you know what? He's a God of peace. And I'm going to build an altar here. And why does he build an altar? Because an altar was to be a constant reminder for those going forward what God had done in that moment. You know what the biggest picture of this is to me? Baptism. Because every time he would walk by that altar, what would he remember? He would remember what God did. But every time somebody else walked by the altar, he'd be able to point them to what God did. And when we get baptized, it's a remembrance of what God has done but when we get baptized in front of others, we're able to tell them what God has done. Amen? So again, it's like building an, or an altar of remembrance of what God has done. So from doubter to deliver, does God really care? Enough to discipline, to give us His Word, to come to us. And does He know what He's doing? Yep, even in all, of his, even in all your frailties, you plus God is a majority. He can use even me. He can use even you. Will God take care of me? Look at verse 25. Now it came to pass the same night the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull and the second bull of seven years old and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. Okay, now we're getting busy. He turns him and says, Okay, now that you know you're called, here's your first order of business. I want you to go to your house and I want you to get the two bulls from your father. This is a famine. Get the two bulls from your father. Take your dad's fancy sport car and drive it to a wall. I mean, right? I mean, take the most valuable thing he has, and I want you to sacrifice it. And then I want you to go, and I want you to take the altar and wipe it out. And then, you know, those idols next to it, destroy them. Now we're going to find out if Gideon has faith or not. It's easy to say we have faith. It's another thing to have faith when God calls us to do something that we might normally be afraid to do. 
Now, remember that Gideon's family was filled with idol worshipers, and it's not by chance that God starts his ministry in his house first. Guys, if we can't minister in our own homes, we can't minister anywhere else. It's got to start there. Verse 26. And he built an altar to the Lord your God, and built an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bowl and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you cut down. I like that. So you take, the, you take the idol and use it for firewood. I like that. Use it for firewood to make a sacrifice to the true and living God. So he's telling them, I want you to go down and the very things that your family holds dear, destroy them. Some of us have felt that way when we got saved. Like we come home to our families and we're, we're telling them who we are now in Christ and they really struggle with it. Right? But praise God that He's called us to do that. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by what? Not so much, Gideon. He did it in the dark. I'm afraid to stand up and let everybody see my face, so I'll do what God says, but I'll do it so no one sees it. Gideon. But can you relate to this guy or what? It reveals his continued fear in that he didn't do it in front of everybody else. It's kind of like the people that pray in a restaurant but make sure nobody notices. <laughs> Dear Lord, thank you for this food in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> I did it under the cover of night. Nobody knows that I'm really a Christian. Now imagine the scene the next morning. Look at verse 28. Look what happens. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was an altar of Baal torn down. The wooden image was there beside it. It was cut down. And the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. They come out and there's a huge barbecue going on. And they walk out and Baal's altar down. And the idols tore up. And they're all going, what in the world happened here? The men were fired up. Why? Because Gideon had obeyed the Lord in his command and something that no other man had done Hadn't God already told them not to worship idols? Didn't He already tell them to destroy all the idols? Didn't they already all know this was God's command? The answer is yes, they weren't doing it. Praise God that one man would. He was being obedient to the Lord, something that someone else should have done long before. But notice the two reactions to what He does. Verse 29. So they said to one another, who's done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. You know, I have an idea, one of those ten guys he took with him, told. How else did they find out? It was Gideon. They told. I want witness protection. I'll tell you who it is. Just don't kill me, right? So the word was out. He stood for God and people didn't like it. There's nothing new under the sun, you guys. You stand for God, there's going to be people that don't like it. Verse 30. Then the men of the city said, bring out your son that he may die. You stand for God, they want to kill him. And then it says, the rest of that verse, I love this. Because he has torn down the altar of Baal, because he has cut down the woman image that was beside it. We want to kill him because he obeyed the Lord. But look, not everybody was impacted, ne- impacted ne- negatively. Look what his dad does. His dad, who was the one who owned the bulls, the dad who the one the idols belonged to. Look at this. But Joash said to all who stood up against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be the one to put him to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Man, this is wisdom. He says, if Baal's God, let Baal take care of him. Why do we got to worry about it? If Baal's God, Baal, you get him. But you know what's really happened here? God has used his son to impact the father. Because he stood up, his father went, maybe we shouldn't have had those altars. Maybe my son's right. We think we're going to go home and everybody's going to just be like these men. Kill him! You know what? Maybe many of them will, but there's going to be some that say, you know what, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe I need to readdress everything I'm doing. Verse 32. Therefore, that I finish over, let the one who plead with him be put to death because his altar has been torn down. Verse 32. Therefore on that day they called his name Jerobaal saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. They changed his name to Contender of Baal. His new name was Challenger or Contender of Baal. Hey, Contender of Baal, how you doing? 
He was known from then on as being a guy who came against Baal. You know, I like that. That's what he was known for from now on. They'd be like, hey, walks in righteousness. How you doing this morning? Hey, loves God above all else. You know what I mean? Hey, contender of Baal. Hey, standing up against false gods. Praise the Lord. We're almost done. Don't fear man, idols, fear God. You know, this happened, something similar happened in the 19th century. A guy got saved in the southern seas, and he was a tribal chief, and you know what he did? He got converted to Christianity, he brought all the people out, he brought all the idols out into the middle of town. He'd ever bring their idols out, he said, here's what we're going to do. And he said to the idols, any of you idols, you got five minutes notice, you can run away right now, if not, we're going to destroy you. <laughs> and then all the idols that stayed... They destroyed. I like that. The people can see. He goes, I warned them. You know what I mean? They, they stayed. They chose their way. And he wiped them all out. I like that. Will God take care of me? Gideon, though fearful, obeyed, and God protected him from the crowd and touched his father's heart. Lasting, lastly, does God keep his promises? Verse 33. Then all the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east gathered together. They crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. So the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him. In the Old Testament, God would give the Spirit for a specific task to a specific man at a specific time. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abazites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. Look what happens when one man stands for God. We're going to see in the next chapter, 32,000 guys show up. Why? Because one guy stood up. You know, we're always looking around for someone else to be the one guy. You know, if somebody here at work would stand up, I'd, I'd back them up. If somebody else at work started a Bible study, I'd come to it. If somebody in my neighborhood started having a, you know, a Bible study at their house, I'd probably go. Maybe we're supposed to be the ones standing up first, amen? That all the other people will show up. Gideon seems headed in the right direction. He's standing for God. He's tearing down the false idols. His dad's been impacted. The Spirit of God's upon him. His faith, though limited, has served to stir up 32,000 people. But guess what? It doesn't finish so well. Look at the last five verses. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. There are so many things wrong with that sentence, I can't even start. Lord, if you will, as you have said. What's he calling God? A liar. Here's what he's saying. If you will, as you have said. Do we ever need to ask God, if you will, as you have said? If he said, he will. He's God. He's not us. He's God. Amen? We say stuff we don't always do. It. God says it. He always does it. But we see here that now he's going to ask for some more tests. Now, this is a lack of faith. Because God's already told him what to do. And now he's like, well, I just want to make sure. So he starts testing God. Don't test God. Look what it says. Look, I shall put a fleece of wool out on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you shall save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Lord, if the water's on the fleece, then I'll know you're not a liar. That's what he's saying, isn't it? By the way, people come to me and go, I'm putting a fleece out before God. That's not a good thing. You don't put fleeces out. This is questioning God. People have taken that, twisted it all around, and putting a fleece out. And they'll say things like, if, you know, and, and uh, some weird stuff too, by the way. I was with a guy one time, and he was praying about asking this girl to marry him. He said, if I bull a strike right now, I'm going to ask her to marry me. I'm like, dude, that is no way to be doing anything. What do you bull a strike? What do you get a gutter ball? Are you going to kill her? What are you going to do? How about getting on your knees and seeking the Lord and let the Holy Spirit speak to you? Amen? What is that magic eight ball if the Lord wants me to, you know what I mean? Don't do that. He says, God, you've already told me what to do, but if you really meant it, then make it happen. You know what God does? He makes it happen. What a gracious God we serve, amen? He does it anyway. Well, Gideon, you're just not real smart, so, all right. Here you go. And so it was when he arose, verse 36, the next morning and squeezed the fleece together. He wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. So then he went off and fought. No, look at verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. I would be. But let me speak one more time. Let me test, I pray, just one more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but all the ground be wet. He's testing God. 
guys, this is not an act of faith. This is an act of faithlessness. We don't have to ask God to prove that he's telling the truth. Amen? But that's what he does. Last verse. And God did so that night. What an awesome God we serve. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew all around on the ground. Our God is gracious. This should be an encouragement to us. In our fear and frailties and lack of faith, at some point, though, we need to step out. But God is a faithful God. So from doubter to deliverer, does God really care about us? What's the answer? You better believe it. And you know what? He cares about us enough to discipline us. Next, next time discipline comes, know that God loves you. Does he, care? he cares enough to give us His Word, to remind us of all He's done. He cares enough to come to us personally in the person of the Lord and then in the person of the Holy Spirit to, for you and I today. Does He know what He's doing using somebody like you or me? Yeah. Isn't that good? He did it on purpose. He uses us on purpose. What a great God. Will God take care of me? Gideon faithfully stepped out. God protected him and his actions were fruitful. His dad was impacted and so were 32,000 others who rushed to join him in the battle. And does God keep his promises? Yes, he does, even when you and I are faithless. Just like Gideon, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you and worship you, Lord. You are such a great and awesome God. And Lord, I do pray for each of us that we would not doubt your word. And Lord, that you would reveal to each of us the calling you've placed upon our lives. And we would not, even in our frailties and our weakness, which we all are, we're all weak, we're all frail. Lord, we all need you. Only as you lead the way can we do anything that will matter for eternity. So Lord, we ask that you would lead the way and you would help us to follow. Lord, that we would step out in boldness and in faith as you call us by name. And Lord, I pray, Lord, for those who may have been walking with you a long time and feel like they haven't really done anything for your kingdom. Lord, stir up the gifts within them, each and every person in this room. Whatever our gifts may be, may we use them for your glory. And we thank you, Lord, that you're faithful to your promises. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of heaven to come. We thank you, Lord, we're going to see you face to face one day. We love you, we praise you, we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.